0: Ezekiel is going to be shown this because he's going to see the glory of God leave because of the rottenness in the court. So God's going to say, I want you Ezekiel to come into the back rooms. We're going to get into some of the secret vaults. We're going to see what I see. I want you to take a little tour with me. So he brought me to the entrance of the court and when he looked, behold a wall, a hole in the wall. see what this probably is a, a visionary type thing with him. And he said to me, son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and behold an entrance. And he said, go in, see the wicked abominations that are committed here. And so I entered and I looked. And behold, every form of creeping thing, beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. And standing in front of them were the seventy elders of the house of Israel. With Jasnia, the son of Shephan, standing among them. Each man with a censer in his hand, the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. And he said, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved image? The Lord, they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will still see greater abominations which they are committing. And he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, the women were sitting there weeping for Tamilus. Tamilus was sort of like the uh, virgin-type goddess and it was worshipped in the ancient world. Some trace it all the way into modern Mariolatry in the Roman Catholic Church. And he said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, twenty five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces to the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit abominations which they have committed here that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? They are putting the twig to their nose and therefore I say I shall deal in wrath with them. My eye will have no pity nor will I spare. Though they cry in my uh, ears with loud voice I will not listen to them. So he announces here that he is finished with this phase of Israel's history. This is the basis of what's now going to take place. Now he's going to watch, in stages, the Shekinah glory leave. What I want you to look at as we go through these verses is be very observant over the the geography and geometry of what's happening here. What I mean by that is, uh, if you have a map of Jerusalem in your Bibles, you'll usually see that in that biblical day, there's a, a rift valley that runs down the valley of Kidron. And the old city of David is on this little uh, little hill. It's a very, very little hill. And then in, in Solomon's day, Solomon got this whole area up here where the temple is. That's the Temple Mount. Um, and the temple had an east gate on it. Okay? Now, just keep that geometry in mind. Now watch the verses. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. And then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with shattering weapons in his hand. Among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case on his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze, bronze altar. Then, now here it comes, watch. Then... The glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, whose loins was in the writing case. The Lord said, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in his midst. And to the others he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity, do not spare. Slay the old men, young women, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. And so they started with the elders who were before the temple, and so forth. Okay, now the first thing is this: there's a judgment happening in this vision that Ezekiel sees. But what's important to notice is that inside the temple, in the Holy of Holies, was this thing, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark cover were the cherubs, which are uh, artistic renditions of the real cherubs that guard the throne of God. And in between these cherubs, whatever they look like, on the top of this Ark, there was this glowing cloud. And that was the glory of God that was inside the temple. Well, what we're seeing now is the first motion of this glo- of this God. That's why in verse 3, the glory moves from the cherub, or from the cherubs, on which it had been, over to the threshold of the temple. So now there's a departure. It's as though God gets up off the throne and he walks to the door of the temple. So that's the f- step one. Now come to chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. And then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherub, something like a sapphire stone resembling a throne, he spoke to the man under the linen. Enter between the whirring wheels and the cherubim. This is where they get the flying saucer idea. Fill your hands with coals of fire and scatter them over the city. So he goes through this thing, but down in verse 4, as he scatters it, again a picture of judgment. Verse 4, Then the glory of God went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. So now he's at the he's at the threshold and the the glory of God radiates out. So now it's leaving the temple. Now we come to chapter 10, verse 18. It says, Then the glory of God departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim, when the cherubim departed. In other words, the cherubim themselves are leaving. So... When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wheels and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them, or the, the round things, actually. It's translator's idea as wheel. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate. The glory of God of Israel hovered over them. So now the, the cherubs in this vision, they, after the glory of God got off of their back and came over to the thing, they come out the door, and now the glory of God remounts the cherubs, But now they're outside. Just notice the direction. Now, chapter 11, verse 1. Moreover, the Spirit lifted up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward, the twenty-five men at the entrance of the gate. He said, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in this city, who say is not the time near to build houses. The city is the pot, and we are the flesh. So prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Thus saith the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You've multiplied your slain in the city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city are the flesh, and this city is the pot, but I shall bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, and I will bring a sword upon you. In other words, what's happened here is these people are panicking as they see the as they see the the nation fall apart. And instead of taking the prophetic clue that um, guys, the reason why everything's falling apart is because of spiritual rebellion. What they're doing is they see everything's falling apart, and you know, at that point, it's a challenge to their faith. You see, the problem is when the pressure comes on, there's only one way back to God. What is it? It's by confession of sin. They have to acknowledge their, conf- their sin before him or it doesn't do any good. There's no, there's no guarantees. Well, they don't want to do that. I mean, come on. you know, that solved the problem. So they're going to be rebellious about it. Well, if they're going to be rebellious about it, they can't get assurance that when everything falls apart, they'll be okay. So where are they going to get their assurance? Then they start going around and picking up the human gimmicks, going out into the world system, going into pagan religion, you feared a sword, but you didn't come to me. I told you, a sword couldn't touch you if you would trust me. But you haven't trusted me, you fear the sword, you won't get right with me, so now I'm going to bring the sword, the very thing that you fear. And this is a tremendous lesson because all of us are prone to gimmicks. We always want a gimmick solution because it's, it's in our flesh it, it fits. The problem is, in the long run, it doesn't fit and usually winds up, we we wind up creating our own mess that we were trying to avoid. Exactly the thing we're trying to avoid is the thing that we run into. And this is the case of it. This is an example of it. You feared the sword. You didn't solve it. You didn't resolve it. You didn't listen to the prophets. You didn't think that I'm sovereign over the sword. You don't have to fear it if you're all right with me. But you're not all right with me, so you have to fear the sword. And now you're going to get the sword. Because you're not responding to all these promptings that I've been trying to give you. So verse 11, the city will not be a pot, nor will you be the flesh in the midst of it. See, the idea of the flesh in the pot is protection. The pot protects the flesh. It's it's like a, a, a citadel, defense system. But I shall judge you all the way to the border of Israel. I'm going to move you out. Thus, you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinance, but you acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Notice the accusation in verse 12. You either go with the Bible, or you go with paganism. There is no in-between. So, he says, uh, clearly, verse 12, from all we've studied Thursday nights this year, you know, when you read the first part of verse 12, what the ordinances and the statutes are, right? That's the Sinaitic covenant. That's the the book of Exodus. That's the book of Leviticus. That's the book of Numbers. That's the commandments. But you've acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. I gave you the word. What did I say when I gave you the word? I said, abide in it each day. But no, you want to go and substitute for the word of God something out of the world system. And now it's come about as I prophesied. Then I fa- fell on my face and I cried out with a loud voice, Alas, O oh God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Are you going to totally destroy the nation? And then there's an assurance passage in here that, No, I'm not going to... Dis- dis- uh, the, the, the age of Israel is over in one sense. But your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given, given us as a possession. Therefore, thus saith the Lord... Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they have gone. This is a foreview of all of history. I will gather you from the peoples. I will assemble you out of the countries upon which you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. You see, that's the same theme, remember we noticed before in the prophets, as as they kind of slam down in judgment. It's never a total judgment. There's always the promise that God will pick up the pieces finally. Hope is never totally erased for those who have been elected by God. And Ezekiel is a prophet, and so we see that same theme that we've already explored. Now, we want to see the last dramatic act of the glory of God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wheels. This is verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wheels with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Then the glory of God went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. So over here there's a mountain. The glory of God comes over to this mountain. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. End of story. Now take a look, I said when we were going through this, to check that geometry. Observe the motion. Does this motion suggest a New Testament analog? This is, a, this is Old Testament theology, and this is, I want to show you an example of why when Christians don't read the Old Testament, they cannot understand the nuances that are in the New Testament. When you read the Gospel of John, and John starts out introducing the Logos of God, what words does he use? you remember? Hold the place here and turn to John chapter 1 a moment. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the most theologically packed verse in the New Testament, "...and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." Now, the very Word, we beheld His glory... He became flesh, and the word dwell. See that Greek word dwell, the English word in verse 14, dwell? You know what the Greek verb behind that is? Shakan. The of glory has come back. That's what John's saying. And anybody who knew their Old Testament would not have just read this like we do, very cursorily in our Christian circle. Oh yeah, that's nice for a nice sentence. No, no. It's got a lot more to it than that. This is announcement by John the Apostle in words unmistakable to a sensitive Jew that that Shekinah glory that left in Ezekiel's day is back here with us and it dwelt among us and it flashed forth from time to time in the Gospels you watch when certain things happen there's suddenly a flashing forth of of this glory of God that's, that's potentially always there with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus comes to where for the central confrontation? Every Gospel has it. All four Gospels. Where does he have one of the most hateful, rebellious confrontations in his entire career? Where, what piece of real estate? The temple. At least once, probably twice, he goes in and what does he do inside the temple? He cleans house, and finally, where is the scheme that leads to his crucifixion hatched? The guys that run the temple, and he's crucified. And in Acts chapter one, he's going to go um, the classic place of the uh, of the ascension. Where he prayed before he was crucified in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. What do we notice about the terrain, about the picture? And when they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day journey, when they had entered anyone in the upper room, they'd returned from the mount. And what happened? Where is this mount? This is the mount right here, the same mount where the glory in Ezekiel departed from. Notice in verse 10 of Acts 1, as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Exactly the same real estate. Six centuries later, the incarnate Son of God, the glory comes back to earth, he has the confrontation at the temple, he is rejected by the nation, he goes across the Kidron Valley, and he leaves. Same departure route that he left in the Old Testament. This is this is unmistakable structure and design in Scripture. An unmistakable attestation to the inerrancy of the Bible, of the fact that there's a sovereign God moving in all of this. So, what we've seen now is the three signals. Let's review. The three signals that something is going on in the exile It's very, very significant. We now add, number three, the departure of the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory. All three announce that a permanent change has occurred in history. There are many, many ramifications of this change. And next week, we're going to get in and finish these so we get into the doctrine, but I want you to now turn in the notes to page 59. We want to look at one very potent theme, and that is what has happened to the Gentiles. Something occurs here at this point in history. Now, the Gentiles pre-existed, obviously, 600 B.C. Again, let's look at a timeline. Here's Noah, the dispersion of the nations, call of Abraham, Exodus, David, the fall of the kingdom, and exile. So, in here, we have the age of Israel. Actually, the age of Israel goes on, but the age of Israel I mean in the sense of a physical, viable kingdom. What were the Gentiles doing? All this time that we have spent from Genesis chapter 12 on through 2 Kings chapter 24, we have looked again and again at Israel, but we haven't looked much at all at what's going on in the nations round about. So we want to review something. What has happened to these sons of Noah? Remember back a year or so ago, We said how at this point, which is a forgotten point about world history, all nations, all races were begun out of one family. We all got off the same boat. And all the cultures of the world emanate from these men. And these men were geniuses. Remember I showed you evidences of their navigation that these guys could measure longitude in ways which we still don't know. Obviously, they had some sort of clocking devices. <coughs> they appeared to have mapped the entire world before the Ice Age covered Antarctica. And they had all the trade routes and commerce established. So by the time of Abraham here, you have basically modern civilization in the sense of, of uh, cities, architecture, the technologies, the basic technologies, medicine, all the rest. All of that's established. But we also noted, remember back there, that Noah, the last picture we have of Noah isn't a polite one. It is not a nice picture. Something's wrong. So the very first family of civilization back here, the Bible depicts as heroes but as fallen heroes. There's something wrong in the family. And Noah's drunk. In the technology of his time, the agro-technology, he grew a vineyard. But he didn't really subdue the vineyard. The vineyard subdued him. Which is a a picture of what men do. We're going to find out in a few years what computers can do to us. So, it's the same thing. What the vineyard did to Noah. It's always the story. It's a relentless theme. Because as men of the flesh who rebel, we never perfectly subdue. We never carry out the Adamic order of subduing perfectly the environment. It always winds up subduing us. So... In this period, we have a paganization sets in. Apostasy grows. You have all kinds of of, uh, pagan religions that begin to form. And that's going on in the background. Some more potent than others. The Canaanites, for example, become viciously uh, negative in their volition toward God. They they, uh, harden their hearts. They do all kinds of abominations. They self-destruct. And out of this, we have fragmented pieces. Now, at this point in history, something starts anew. What God does, since Israel's gone, we go back to Gentiles. And it comes, the kingdom of man that was begun back at Babel takes on a new form. And on page 59 of the notes, that's what I mean when I see the title there, when I put the title there, the ascent of the imperial kingdom of man. Now, I use the word imperial for reasons which you'll see in a moment. Simultaneous with the loss of the kingdom of God, were the revival and rise of the kingdom of man. Just as the global flood in Noah's day and subsequent drop in human longevity drew a curtain over the Anteluvian past, so now the exile of Israel, another curtain fell over the supernatural prophetic past of Israel. History has forgotten. Today, historians and all historical records have forgotten the supernaturalness of the centuries prior to 600 B.C. The stories are all in a haze. In a lost memory. There's no no viable memory on earth of an interfering God in dramatic points as he did in Israel's history. So, in point one on, on page 59, I've just reviewed for you the Tower of Babel, how it all started. Coming over to page 60 in the notes, Israel's function during this period, which was to testify to God. It was to be a counterculture established. Now, at the bottom of page 60. We want to notice one, uh, one fruit. If we We're going to conclude the class at the bottom of page 60 and the top of page 61. Because this is what is left at the exile. Israel was ordained to be what to the nations? A worldwide blessing. Even in her exile, she is a blessing to the nations. And I want you to see this. The exile would give the last bit of preparation for the coming global Messiah, a finished canon of Scripture with a prophetic panorama of human history. The exile would not only be the means of disciplining Israel, but would complete Israel's role of preparing the world for Christ by dispersing her citizens throughout the Gentile world, spreading biblical truth in the Scriptures among men everywhere. Josephus notes that by his day in the first century, it could be said that Jews lived in every part of the earth since very early times. Great church fathers long recognized this function of the exile. Augustine wrote, that same nation was afterwards dispersed through the nations in order to testify to the scriptures in which eternal salvation in Christ had been declared. The brilliant French mathematician Pascal whom secular historians treat with great embarrassment because he's a brilliant mathematician but a stubborn believer, and this embarrasses the heck out of historians of science and math, commented, quote, as his gospel was to be believed in all the world, it was not only necessary that there should be prophecies to make it believed, but that these prophecies should exist throughout the whole world in order to make it embraced by the whole world. So we conclude now with one of the strange after-effects of Israel's existence and this very exile, is that the Jews begin to move out. They were clustered and kept inside this nation. Now they become the world's merchants. You know how powerful they are? That in the tribulation, when God wants to evangelize the human race quickly, when there's only a few years left in the final tribulation before Christ, which group does he call upon to do the evangelizing? The 144,000. Why do you suppose he he reverts to Jews to do evangelism? A Hebrew Christian friend of mine made it perfectly clear one day when he said, Well, Charles, it's very easy because we Jews are in every country on earth and we already know the culture and the language and we have all the business connections. You don't have to send missionaries. In the seven years of the tribulation, there isn't any time to send missionaries, there isn't any time to learn languages. The time is quick, and the gospel must go out very rapidly. And there's only one group on earth that can do that, that have a biblical background built in, that know the languages and know the cultures that are already in position to do it. Well, that's what's ultimately going to happen. But what we're saying on page 60 and 61 is that in 586, the seeding of the world's cultures began. That's why you can go to Argentina, you can go to Brazil, and you can see Jewish families. Jewish businessmen, Jewish bankers. You can go to Europe and you can see them. You can go to Australia. You can even go to the Orient. Very amazing. Um, my daughter-in-law, who's uh, a Japanese, was saying that in Japan, they, there's a big mystery about uh, some of the um, implements and furniture and so on in the Empress' home. And of course, they've got a new empress now. And she, I think she graduated from Harvard or something. but. She's very much the 20th century lady, and it's going to be interesting to watch how Japanese culture deals with this lady because she's quite, quite an independent woman. And what they're all excited about is that the believers in Japan have this tradition that she made me aware of that there's a mirror that the, the emperors use in Japan and have used for centuries, and there's a mysterious thing on this, written on this mirror, and it's written in the Hebrew script. And uh, it's supposedly the Tetragrammaton. And what Akiko was telling about, the thing that the Japanese believers don't understand, is it came into the royalty of Japan centuries and centuries and centuries ago, obviously from Jewish sources. What was the line of this? Jews must have visited Japan. So, this is the after effect, the planting of Jewish citizens who carry the Torah with them, who carry a biblical memory with them, now we will watch what happens as these Jewish citizens begin to interact with the growing Gentile kingdoms. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in history, uh, that you have ordained that your word shall never fail, your word shall never return void. And we're so thankful and encouraged as we see the historical record of your performance. And we give you thanks now through your Son. Amen. Again, that the. Oh, <coughs> Hang around here for a few minutes if there are any uh, questions that uh, you'd like to raise or points you'd like to bring up that we might have passed over fast. Yeah, it's an excellent question, Debbie. Um, and that one of the things, as you noticed in, these, in the pattern I've come here, I, I try to deal with the event in Scripture, and then we deal with a doctrine that's associated with that event that you can picture by the event. And um, one of the things that we're going to deal with here it comes up is a doctrine of separation. In other words, the relationship of individual believers who live in outside of the theocracy. We don't live in the theocracy, because the theocracy doesn't even exist today. So now the question comes, is the role of the Christian, uh, so to speak, out in the world? And um, <clears throat> that's one of the things. We're going to use examples. Daniel's actually a good example of how to conduct yourself. Um, there are other examples in Scripture. The, I guess what complicates it for us, living this side of the Magna Carta and this side of Western European Christian influence, is that many of the institutions that we honor in our country are derived directly from the Bible. And so that we live in a stream of political life that was actually generated <clears throat> um, by those people that are ridiculed almost universally in the Puritans. Um, if you, just to grasp the history, why we have a problem is, is because Everybody else wants to make 2 plus 2 something else. And so we are in a position of trying to hold to that which our forefathers held to. And it introduces a complexity that isn't there because when Daniel went out into into Babylon, he wasn't going into a state that had derived from, from the Bible. He was going out into a state that was clearly pagan. So we, it's mushy with us, and that's why we all feel this ambiguity. We don't want to make political action the end-all, but then we don't want it said that, well, what were you doing when you had an opportunity to raise your hand and be counted, and then you you didn't you were silent. We don't want to, in other words, I guess the pressure on us is, <clears throat> should we do like the evangelicals did in Germany in 1933? Nothing. Um, how would we feel 50 years from now, looking back at uh, the Lord Terry's? So there's that fear of not speaking out. Um, Not that the speaking out is going to change anything, but at least the church will have borne witness to what was right and what was wrong. And and the German evangelicals to this day feel very almost um, ashamed of their history because during the early rise of the Nazis, uh, they didn't speak out. And um, it's to their chagrin that they didn't. So, and there's the old the salt passage and that sort of thing. <clears throat> but to get into the details of that, I'd rather save that until we get into the doctrine separation. Um, but just, just to help provide some grist for the thinking of the question you raised, there's a video um, that I would recommend you look at. There's lots of videos out there, but one just is my favorite as far as history goes at a very critical point in English history much of what we identify as American proper American political behavior originated. And it was during the rise of the Puritan Revolt. And there's a video, um, Richard Harris stars as Oliver Cromwell in this video. Some Christian group makes it. I showed it here. The church has it in the church library here. You can borrow it. Um, And I did a series one summer in which we played sections of that video and I explained the history that went with it. Now this is a history lesson that is amazing, and you, you just—it just bugs me that I spent all these years in school and learned so little. It's just something else. And you know, you come out and you think, well, why didn't they teach me this? Why didn't they? What was what was I being taught? Uh, and we we talk about the Constitution, we talk about the separation of powers, we talk about all these neat American institutions. What we have to understand is that they occurred because there were a group of very powerful Bible-believing Christians called Puritans in England who, when the king got to a point where he was, he was involved in wars with France and he was in wars with the Roman Catholics and so on, and, and he wore down the treasury and it was a big mess and he had to raise money. So the king finally decided he was going to call Parliament and the idea was he could control Parliament and Parliament would vote the taxation in and do all the hoopla. And the Puritans said, oh, wait a minute here. And, and also he borrowed numerous m- m- monies from the French, and the French were Catholics. so the French wanted him to, as the head of the Protestant church in England to change it over. And the Puritans said, no, you're not going to change it over. And there's one great scene in that, in that video where Cromwell has come to church to worship with his family, and he, while they're praying, he looks up, and he sees all this Catholic artwork and the Catholic crucifixes and everything else on the... Place and he says, "Who did this?" And he storms up to the altar and he takes it and he just throws it all over the place. And they said that's an act of rebellion. But Cromwell was a lord; he was Lord Cromwell, so he was in the in, in the gentleman side of the of the society. And uh, he said, "I own property in this state as a as a Christian, and I will not compromise." And so, when the king came in to to commandeer Parliament, Cromwell sat there with his, his lord friends, and they proceeded by perfect parliamentary procedure to depose the king. And it was a it's a neat scene. It's done very very well. And it, what it shows you is that they didn't bear arms at first. What they did is they outmaneuvered uh, the pagans um, in their logic, in their law, in their debate. So, so badly did they do this, so, so well, we would say, that the historians of England say that you could laugh at the Puritans the way they dressed, you could laugh at the way they sang their foolish little songs, but whoever has met a Puritan in the hall of debate or on the field of battle stops laughing. And that's the testimony the Puritans had in England. Uh, this is before they came to America. <clears throat> and here's the point. They built their platform on 1 Samuel 8. What they did is they went back to the Word of God to obtain political principles. And this was unheard of, because, I mean, good grief, in, in in Roman Europe, the Bible wasn't even printed, so nobody knew what the Bible said. So here were these people saying, our society is messed up, it's screwed up, we've got to go back to the roots and the foundations. So they went back, and they... they um, they obtained all these political ideas. So what they proceeded to do was they they, they, they control a the monarchy, they defined a new version of the monarchy that was patterned after the monarchy of Israel that was under the law, that the king had to obey the law. Now to us that sounds quite intuitively obvious, but it wasn't obvious to them, and there was a revo- revolution fought over it. Um, Cromwell then went to the lords um, and tried to get an army to defend because the king was going to subdue them by force. And so they had no army. And he went; he never was in the army himself. He was not a man of arms. He went to the library, started reading the great uh, captains of war, studied on his own, went out at his, with his own money and financed training of the first volunteer trained army the world has ever seen. He um, trained his men in in the film, you see this, because the armies in those days weren't trained, they were just really mobs that they put spears and swords in their hands and said go at it. Well Cromwell realized that they were outnumbered and they couldn't do it that way. So he actually set up military drills and he was one of the first men to do that and his army was called, uh, called Ironsides and it was so feared in Europe that during the reign of Cromwell, when when the Puritans took over, there wasn't one skirmish with the English army, because Europe was terrified of these guys. They would go into battle singing hymns to Jesus Christ, that they were elect and damned upon their enemies. And uh, you can imagine the phalanx of these guys coming at you, gloriously singing hymns to Jesus, and uh, not afraid to die whatever, for to be absent from the bodies face to face with the Lord and uh, they just swept armies before them, outnumbered three to one. And uh, so this is why they are, they are ridiculed today. The secular historians hate the Puritans, but in the hatred of the Puritan, they've forgotten what the Puritan did. He cut He cut an activist government down to size and said that there's a standard up here and the government must fit the standard. And that was historically how there arose the idea of a constitution. The separation of powers was historically because there was a belief and I don't mean to imply the Puritans were the only people that did this, but they were the most prominent examples. Um, but they believed in the sin nature so, so profoundly that they said the only way to, pres- to halfway preserve society is to separate the three functions of government into entirely distinct areas. Now, we have done it on paper, but the Swiss did it actually. I'm told that in Switzerland, the legislature is physically exists in one city. The executive exists in another city. And the judiciary exists in a third city. They won't let them, them coexist in the same city. Um, because they want to keep them all separate. So the little cliques and the good old boy networks are never formed. They form within themselves, but they compete with one another. And I think that's the trouble that you see here today, uh, in, in Cromwell's day, what they faced there was a tyranny of the king, the executive branch. Um, what we face is a tyranny of the judiciary. Uh, the judiciary has total control over. over yeah, I mean, if you're a legislator and you can pass a law, uh, Chuck Colson's bringing this up in his radio program in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the, the guy from Notre Dame Law School that passed the RICO Act, the, which is, gives law enforcement officials power to go in against organized crime. That was a bill that he designed to deal with organized crime. Some idiot judge now is applying it to political protesters, claiming that children praying outside an abortion clinic are racketeers, and therefore under RICO can be indicted, and, and getting away with it. So now all of a sudden we've taken a law, and, and they interview the guy that wrote the law. This is, I mean, the guy knows what he, why he wrote the law. This is a law professor, and he's saying, I didn't write it for that, I wrote it for this. What are you guys telling? You're misreading my words. Well, that's what theologians are doing to Scripture. And we are deal- We live in a day when the written word means nothing. So here we are, we've got a constitution, but it's so, because of the way we read and way we interpret it, it's just twisted. So now comes the problem of what we face today, and we're facing it more and more, as I see it, and, and why your question is so relevant is, we are going to have to deal with the question because it's going to come to our front door. And you either deal with the question when it's on the sidewalk or you deal with it when it's at your front door. And the question we have here is, at what point do we disobey? Because it's coming down to that. And if we have to go to to civil disobedience, then how do we respond? And the Bible gives us examples, and Daniel's an example of civil disobedience. Daniel does disobey the authorities, but he does it respectfully. He doesn't um, call for revolution. He he calls he he disobeys and takes the consequences, but he's not going to obey the law when the law is wrong. Period. Um, the question then comes, of course, one then gets into us as Americans, how do we justify the American Revolution? And uh, there's been volumes written on that. And the, here's how here, here how the Christians in In the days of the American Revolution, justified their disobedience to the king. Their justification was, and again, this is a period of history, I didn't learn it until I started chasing the question down you chased, you're asking, and trying to figure out well, how did, you know, the Christians were behind the American Revolution. In England, we don't realize this, but the American Revolution wasn't called the American Revolution. It was called the Revolt of the Presbyterians. That was what it was called. And the reason was because the leaders were all Presbyterians. When George Washington was at Yorktown, of his general staff of colonels, I think of 15 colonels, 12 were elders in the Presbyterian Church. And they, they called the, call the Presbyterian clergy during the American Revolution the Black Regiment, because they always used to wear the black robes. And so they played an enormous role. And the document they used to justify the Revolution was Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, which is the volume I brought here back when he was staying for Samuel. Their argument was this, and you can disagree with it and so on, I guess, and a lot of Christians disagree. Some Christians would have been Tories. They would have said, well, it's, it's godly to stay loyal to the king. Well, the revolutionaries argued that they weren't revolutionaries. They argued that what had happened was that the colonies were companies that had written contracts with Parliament, so that you had Massachusetts Bay and so forth, and you had all these Jamestown. And they had made an agreement. They invested money. Their families moved to this country on the basis of a contract. The contract was with Parliament. The contract said you could have the land and you would be taxed this way and that way. And that was the agreement. Well, King George ran out of money. See, always follow the money. That usually leads you to where the problem is. He, he ran out of money and his budget busted and he had to get money. So the idea was the colonies, compared to England, were pretty well off economically. I mean, we were here, we're farming, uh, much more land than they, they had in England. And so they said, hey, wait a minute, you know, come on, colonies, you, you're going you're to finance your part of this deal. I mean, we're the mother country here. And so they changed the taxation. Well, the colonies, that's when you, you, we always hear about the Boston Tea Party and no taxation, no representation, but what we fail to ever get taught is that behind the tax objection, it wasn't the objection of paying taxes, it was, wait a minute, what happened to the agreement we had? You guys tore up the contract. So, the colonists never really saw themselves as revolutionaries. They saw themselves as holding to the original contract broken by the English. And that's, that's how they say that they were being obedient. See, the issue is Romans 13, obey the authorities. And the issue in the American Revolution was, which authority? King George? The Parliament, or the contractual agreements that had been made, and depending on your answer to that, that's all three of those questions can be answered. Romans twelve thirteen, I'm obedient. And what's so what's interesting about it is that in our day right now, we may have a very kind of similar thing happening in Alabama. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't. <clears throat> but the. The governor of Alabama is not some southern boy that is naive. I've read his brief. My son sent it to me on the Internet. This guy's got a, a lawyer team, and they've thought it through. Their position is that the Supreme Court cannot tell them, it cannot tell the state, how to interpret the First Amendment. The First Amendment, the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, um, is very obvious. It doesn't require 18 lawyers to tell you what it means. And therefore, he says, as governor, I am the governor of the executive branch, and not in the judiciary. But the judiciary can enforce their will apart from the executive branch, and I refuse to enforce the will. So his position is going to be, as an executor, as the executive power, that he has a right to choose which he is going to, which he's going to follow, and which he isn't, because he too is sworn to uphold the Constitution. So since he's sworn to uphold the Constitution, it's and he believes he's holding to the Constitution the whole, in that situation is not to enforce the law of the court so this could become very very interesting and we haven't had a debate like this since the, basically the revolution well, maybe, maybe during the civil war or something but it's a very serious thing and then, tragically it's all caused by a culture war it's the two groups the rising demands of paganism to have its say and the Christians over here as a sort of beleaguered minority We're going to see it. If we don't see it there, we're going to see it with the homosexual thing. Homosexuality will be declared as a civil right, and anybody up here preaching uh, against homosexuality will be charged with a hate crime. I think that's where it's going to go. So, the questions you're asking, and that's why this Daniel thing is going to be interesting, is we want to get some models ready for the hour in which we may have to apply them. What do we do in that situation? Now, Daniel clearly. In civil disobedience, I mean, he didn't go out and start a revolt, and he didn't didn't defy Nebuchadnezzar on 18 and a half issues, but he defied him on one, when Nebuchadnezzar wanted him to worship the statue, he said no, no. And what you find is that Daniel, and it's it's in the script very prominently, he walks to the door and he opens the door, and he prays in public in front of everybody, knowing full well that he'll be reported. So he doesn't, Daniel doesn't um, disobey in a quiet room, hiding from people. He does it publicly. So that's the other side of the model. It's too bad, because we probably will be the first generation of Christians in this country that really have to decide something like this, and it's sad that we've got so many other things to do than to fiddle around with this kind of an issue. But it's coming, I really think, and that's why it's timely that we think through some of this we're not going to have all the answers I'm just going to throw out some of the biblical models that I see because every Christian has to deal with that own, You know, we have to deal with that as unto the Lord in our own hearts but it's a, it's, a, it's, going to be a, it's going to be an issue okay well why don't we uh, uh, next week we're going to f- finish up um, the ramifications of the exile and then go on to the doctrine and we'll get into the separation issue try to get you some good bottles.